We continue with the opinion of the court in United States v. Hansen, beginning with Part 3, Section B. We hold that Clause 4 uses, encourages, or induces in its specialized criminal law sense, that is, as incorporating common law liability for solicitation and facilitation. In truth, the clash between definitions is not much of a contest. Encourage and induce have well-established legal meanings, and when Congress borrows terms of art in which are accumulated the legal tradition and meaning of centuries of practice, it presumably knows and adopts the cluster of ideas that were attached to each borrowed word. To see how this works, consider the word attempts, which appears in Clause 4's next-door neighbors. In a criminal prohibition, we would not understand attempt in its ordinary sense of try. We would instead understand it to mean taking a substantial step toward the completion of a crime with the requisite mens rea. Encourages or induces likewise carries a specialized meaning. After all, when a criminal law term is used in a criminal law statute, that, in and of itself, is a good clue that it takes its criminal law meaning. And the inference is even stronger here, because Clause 4 prohibits encouraging and inducing a violation of law. That is the focus of criminal solicitation and facilitation, too. In concluding otherwise, the Ninth Circuit stacked the deck in favor of ordinary meaning. But it should have given specialized meaning a fair shake. When words have several plausible definitions, context differentiates among them. That is just as true when the choice is between ordinary and specialized meanings, as it is when a court must choose among multiple ordinary meanings. Here, the context of these words, the water in which they swim, indicates that Congress used them as terms of art. Statutory history is an important part of this context. In 1885, Congress enacted a law that would become the template for Clause 4, that law prohibited knowingly assisting, encouraging, or soliciting immigration under a contract to perform labor. Then, as now, encourage had a specialized meaning that channeled accomplice liability, and the words assisting and soliciting, which appeared alongside encouraging in the 1885 Act, reinforced that Congress gave the word encouraging its narrower criminal law meaning. Unsurprisingly, then, when this court upheld the 1885 Act against a constitutional challenge, it explained that Congress has the power to punish any who assist in introducing non-citizens into the country without suggesting that the term encouraging altered the scope of the prohibition. In the ensuing decades, Congress both added and subtracted from the encouraging prohibition in the 1885 Act. 
throughout, it continued to place encouraging alongside assisting and soliciting. Then, in 1917, Congress added induce to the string of verbs. Like encourage, the word induce carried solicitation and facilitation overtones at the time of this enactment. In fact, Congress had just recently used the term in a catch-all prohibition on criminal facilitation. And as with encourage, the meaning of induce was clarified and narrowed by its statutory neighbors in the 1917 Act, assist and solicit. Congress enacted the immediate forerunner of the modern Clause 4 in 1952, and in doing so simplified the language from the 1917 Act. Most notably, the 1952 version dropped the words assist and solicit, instead making it a crime to willfully or knowingly encourage or induce or attempt to encourage or induce, either directly or indirectly, the entry into the United States of any alien not lawfully entitled to enter or reside within the United States. Three decades later, Congress brought 8 U.S.C. Section 1324A1A4 into its current form, still without the words assist or solicit. On Hansen's view, these changes dramatically broadened the scope of Clause 4's prohibition on encouragement. Before 1952, he says, the words assist and solicit may have cabined encourage and induce, but eliminating them severed any connection the prohibition had to solicitation and facilitation. In other words, Hansen claims, the 1952 and 1986 revisions show that Congress opted to make protected speech, not conduct, a crime. We do not agree that the mere removal of the words assist and solicit turned an ordinary solicitation and facilitation offense into a novel and boundless restriction on speech. Hansen's argument would require us to assume that Congress took a circuitous route to convey a sweeping and constitutionally dubious message. The better understanding is that Congress simply streamlined the pre-1952 statutory language, which, as any non-lawyer who has picked up the U.S. Code can tell you, is a commendable effort. In fact, the streamlined formulation mirrors this Court's own description of the 1917 Act, which is further evidence that Congress was engaged in a cleanup project, not a renovation. And critically, the terms that Congress retained, encourage and induce, substantially overlap in meaning with the terms it omitted, assist and solicit. Clause 4 is best understood as a continuation of the past, not a sharp break from it. Section C. Hansen's primary counterargument is that Clause 4 is missing the necessary mens rea for solicitation and facilitation. Both, as traditionally understood, require that the defendant specifically intend that a particular act be carried out. 
encourages or induces, however, is not modified by any express intent requirement. Because the text of Clause 4 lacks that essential element, Hansen protests, it cannot possibly be limited to either solicitation or facilitation. Once again, Hansen ignores the long-standing history of these words. When Congress transplants a common law term, the old soil comes with it. So when Congress placed encourages and induces in Clause 4, the traditional intent associated with solicitation and facilitation was part of the package. That, in fact, is precisely how the federal aiding and abetting statute works. It contains no express mens rea requirement, providing only that a person who aids, abets, counsels, commands, induces, or procures a federal offense is punishable as a principle. Yet, consistent with a centuries-old view of culpability, we have held that the statute implicitly incorporates the traditional state of mind required for aiding and abetting. Clause 4 is situated among other provisions that work the same way. Consider those that immediately follow it. The first makes it a crime to engage in any conspiracy to commit any of the preceding acts, and the second makes it a crime to aid or abet the commission of any of the preceding acts. Neither of these clauses explicitly states an intent requirement, yet both conspiracy and aiding and abetting are familiar common law offenses that contain a particular mens rea. Take an obvious example. If the words aids or abets in Clause 5-2 were considered in a vacuum, they could be read to cover a person who inadvertently helps another commit a Section 1324A1A offense. But a prosecutor who tried to bring such a case would not succeed. Why? Because aiding and abetting implicitly carries a mens rea requirement. The defendant generally must intend to facilitate the commission of a crime, since encourages or induces in Clause 4 draws on the same common law principles, it too incorporates them implicitly. Still, Hansen reiterates that if Congress had wanted to require intent, it could easily have said so, as it did elsewhere in Clause 4. The provision requires that the defendant encourage or induce an unlawful act and that the defendant know or recklessly disregard the fact that the act encouraged is or will be in violation of law. Yet while Congress spelled out this requirement, it included no express mens rea element for encourages or induces. Indeed, Hansen continues, the statute used to require that the encouragement or inducement be committed willfully or knowingly, but Congress deleted these words in 1986. Taken together, Hansen says, this evidence reflects that Congress aimed to make a defendant liable for encouraging or inducing without respect to her state of mind. But there is a simple explanation for why encourages or induces 
is not modified by an express mens rea requirement. There is no need for it. At the risk of sounding like a broken record, encourage and induce, as terms of art, carry the usual attributes of solicitation and facilitation, including, once again, the traditional mens rea. Congress might have rightfully seen the express mens rea requirement as unnecessary and cut it in a further effort to streamline Clause 4. And in any event, the omission of the unnecessary modifier is certainly not enough to overcome the presumption of scienter that typically separates wrongful acts from otherwise innocent conduct. Nor does the scienter applicable to a distinct element within Clause 4, that the defendant know or recklessly disregard the fact that the non-citizens coming to entry or residence is or will be in violation of law, tell us anything about the mens rea for encourages or induces. Many criminal statutes do not require knowledge of illegality, but rather only factual knowledge as distinguished from knowledge of the law. So Congress's choice to specify a mental state for this element tells us something that we might not normally infer, whereas the inclusion of a mens rea requirement for encourages or induces would add nothing. It bears emphasis that even if the government's reading were not the best one, the interpretation is at least fairly possible, so the canon of constitutional avoidance would still counsel us to adopt it. This canon is normally a valuable ally for criminal defendants who raise the prospect of unconstitutional applications to urge a narrower construction. But Hansen presses the clause toward the most expansive reading possible, effectively asking us to apply a canon of constitutional collision. This tactic is understandable in light of the odd incentives created by the overbreadth doctrine, but it is also wrong. When legislation and the Constitution brush up against each other, our task is to seek harmony, not to manufacture conflict. Part 4 Section 1324A1A4 reaches no further than the purposeful solicitation and facilitation of specific acts known to violate federal law. So understood, the statute does not prohibit a substantial amount of protected speech relative to its plainly legitimate sweep. Start with Clause 4's valid reach. Hansen does not dispute that the provision encompasses a great deal of non-expressive conduct, which does not implicate the First Amendment at all. Consider just a few examples. Smuggling non-citizens into the country. Providing counterfeit immigration documents. And issuing fraudulent social security numbers to non-citizens. A brief survey of the Federal Reporter confirms that these are Heartland Clause 4 prosecutions, so the plainly legitimate sweep of the provision is extensive. When we turn to the other side of the ledger, we find it pretty much blank. 
Hansen fails to identify a single prosecution for ostensibly protected expression in the 70 years since Congress enacted Clause 4's immediate predecessor. Instead, he offers a string of hypotheticals all premised on the expansive, ordinary meanings of encourage and induce. In his view, Clause 4 would punish the author of an op-ed criticizing the immigration system. A minister who welcomes undocumented people into the congregation and expresses the community's love and support, and a government official who instructs undocumented members of the community to shelter in place during a natural disaster. Yet none of Hansen's examples are filtered through the elements of solicitation or facilitation. Most importantly, the requirement that a defendant intend to bring about a specific result. Clause 4 does not have the scope Hansen claims, so it does not produce the horribles he parades. To the extent that Clause 4 reaches any speech, it stretches no further than speech integral to the unlawful conduct. It has never been deemed an abridgment of freedom of speech or press to make a course of conduct illegal, merely because the conduct was in part initiated, evidenced, or carried out by means of language, either spoken, written, or printed. Speech intended to bring about a particular unlawful act has no social value, therefore it is unprotected. We have applied this principle many times, including to the promotion of a particular piece of contraband solicitation of unlawful employment, and picketing with the sole unlawful and immediate objective of inducing a target to violate the law. It applies to Clause 4, too. Hansen has no quibble with that conclusion to the extent that Clause 4 criminalizes speech that solicits or facilitates a criminal violation, like crossing the border unlawfully or remaining in the country while subject to a removal order. He agrees that these applications of Section 1324A1A4 are permissible. In fact, he concedes that he would lose if Clause 4 covered only solicitation and facilitation of criminal conduct. But he resists the idea that the First Amendment permits Congress to criminalize speech that solicits or facilitates a civil violation, and some immigration violations are only civil. For instance, residing in the United States without lawful status is subject to the hefty penalty of removal, but it generally does not carry a criminal sentence. Call this the mismatch theory. Congress can impose criminal penalties on speech that solicits or facilitates a criminal violation and civil penalties on speech that solicits or facilitates a civil violation, but it cannot impose criminal penalties on speech that solicits or facilitates a civil violation. If this theory is sound, then Clause 4 reaches some expression that is outside the speech integral to unlawful conduct exception. Of course, that speech is not categorically unprotected does not mean it is immune from regulation, 
but only that ordinary First Amendment scrutiny would apply. We need not address this novel theory, because even if Hansen is right, his overbreadth challenge fails. To succeed, he has to show that Clause 4's overbreadth is substantial relative to its plainly legitimate sweep. As we have discussed, the provision has a wide legitimate reach insofar as it applies to non-expressive conduct and speech, soliciting or facilitating criminal violations of immigration law. Even assuming that Clause 4 reaches some protected speech, and even assuming that its application to all of that speech is unconstitutional, the ratio of unlawful to lawful applications is not lopsided enough to justify the strong medicine of facial invalidation for overbreadth. In other words, Hansen asks us to throw out too much of the good based on a speculative shot at the bad. This is not the stuff of overbreadth. As applied challenges can take it from here. The judgment of the Ninth Circuit is reversed and the case is remanded for further proceedings consistent with this opinion. It is so ordered. We've come to the end of the opinion. Until next episode, thanks for listening to What SCOTUS Wrote Us.